This is not just stay at home and be alone. This is really thinking about what can you do as a positive change agent. Um, I often talk about leadership is being willing to illuminate a way past the status quo. Well, clearly the status quo is not working for us here. And so we're gonna need people that are willing to take up that mantle, think about things beyond themselves, think about the community interests, think about the greater whole and help illuminate a better way forward. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. And we just wanna take a quick pause, a deep breath. We're going to be okay. And if you're in lockdown right now, if you're doing the right thing and staying away from people, Start thinking about what you can do for others in your surrounding community. That's the message today from Dr. David Bray, an expert on bioterrorism, about how to prepare and respond for outbreaks like this. Today on this podcast, we're going to be talking about, well, a lot of things. How is our infrastructure in times like these? How does this virus stack up against SARS and Ebola? And is an autocracy more equipped to take on a virus like this versus a democracy? Those questions and topics in times like these answered today on this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. Enjoy. Excellent. All right. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards here today to talk about the response nature and impact of pandemics is dr david bray doc thanks for being with us today thanks for having me kevin great to be here all right so doc i'm in california right now they just told me i have to stay inside unless i'm going to a bank a grocery store anything that's of necessity so i think we let's just ask the first question that's on everyone's mind right now how is, is this an appropriate response to a pandemic like this? What do we know and how do we be prepared for something like this? So interestingly, um, there have been exercises in the past that have looked at a particularly virulent strain of influenza. And one of the solutions actually is to do exactly what's being implemented now, which is sort of self-imposed isolation, social distancing, only going out when it's essential. And really, that is one of the ways, if you don't have a vaccine yet, and you don't have therapies that can actually help lessen the effects of a virus, uh, it's really the only thing you can really do right now, which is basically try to minimize interactions amongst people. And really what you're trying to do is, is stop the, the existing spread of the disease, slow it down enough so that you don't create additional demand on hospitals, on additional medical facilities and things like that. Because if we have a sudden spike, there's only going to be so many hospital beds. And so what this social distancing and self-imposed isolation is doing is really trying to slow that curve so that people can actually, um, one, if you don't have it already, your chances of getting it once you do self-imposed isolation and only going out when it's essential gets much, much less. And for those people that do have it, we have enough capacity to provide the hospital beds, to provide the medical resources to successfully treat them and not have to turn people away. It's not, it's not great. And in fact, probably in, at least in a generation, we've not seen this in the United States. Um, there have been other cases uh, where we've been dealing with things, say, uh, with Ebola in parts of Africa, uh, other types of uh, both viral and bacterial outbreaks as well, where this has been had to be done in other parts of the world. But this is probably the first time here in the United States that we're sort of having to do this. Um, you know, you'd have to go back to the Spanish influence of 18, 1918. And even then, our societies were nowhere near as connected as they are 
um, now, and I think this is really just a reality of our modern era, that until we get a vaccine or until we get therapies that can help lessen the impacts of coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, we're just going to have to do this for right now. And, it, and it's, it's, a, it's really a, a social strategy that we have to do across the nation and across the planet as well. Now, maybe elaborate on that a little bit more. You said this, this connectedness now, you know, disease in 1918 uh, is not as going to spread as fast because we're now so much more connected. Elaborate on that. And then I want to, I'm kind of interested in your research and background with bioterrorism now. Like it's a little scary times right now if someone were to release, you know, something like this intentionally. Yeah. So, um, well, first I always like to say I did counter bioterrorism. I always like to say I was not for bioterrorism. I was trying to counter it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's always been one of those sort of low probability, high consequence things that can be done. Um, with the bioterrorism program at the CDC, I signed up in 2000. Uh, we were only about 30 people. I was the one individual that knew both computer science and biology. So I became the IT chief. Mm. Um, and about every six months or so, um, different groups, Congress and others would say, we didn't really need to exist. And, and you think about it back in 2000, 9-11 uh, hadn't happened yet. Um, but really why we existed was there had been a sarin gas attacks in 1995 in Japan uh, on their subway. Um, but there was also when the U.S. was paying former Soviet republics to disarm, we discovered that there was actually stockpiles of smallpox. And so that was a concern as well. Um, so, so fast forward, uh, after joining in 2000, it was actually scheduled weeks in advance for me to give a briefing on September 11th, 2001 at nine o'clock in the morning to the FBI and the CIA as to what we would do uh, technology-wise should a bioterrorism event happen and how we'd activate this thing called the Laboratory Response Network for Bioterrorism. Uh, unfortunately, 834, the world changed. I didn't get to give that briefing. Uh, and instead, we dealt with the response to both New York and DC with 9-11. Um, didn't sleep for about three weeks. Stood down on high alert on October 1st. Gave that first briefing on October 3rd uh, to the CIA and the FBI and flew back to Atlanta to only have 24 hours later, the first case of anthrax show up in Florida. Now, when that first case showed up, uh, there wasn't a threat letter found at the time. And it wasn't until later when there were threat letters in DC and then later in New York that it really began to look like bioterrorism. I raise that because uh, we've been through hard times before, um, even after the anthrax events of 2001. Uh, later, there was the scare of what was called severe acute respiratory syndrome which uh, in hindsight, at least at, the, at, at some parts of the CDC, including the bioterrorism program, we had a strong suspicion it was going on uh, way before eventually China said something was going on and other Southeast Asian countries were saying something was going on. Uh, but we also have to respect sovereignty of geographical borders. And so if we ask and they say nothing's going on, we have to treat it as so even if we have indications that there may be a spike in what would be called atypical febrile illness. Uh, we were also seeing the price of garlic, which is seen as a cure-all in certain parts of uh, Southeast Asia, that when the price of garlic goes up more than tenfold, that itself can be an indicator that people are rushing the market to try and get something in the middle of a turbulent situation, even though garlic, unfortunately, doesn't seem to have any uh, effects on uh, coronaviruses. It's still seen as a cure-all. And so with, with that sort of approach to both uh, syndromic surveillance, trying to look for abnormal symptoms and syndromes around the planet, and also what I would call laboratory response. Uh, right now, obviously, we're seeing the United States everybody's wanting to have a faster test and a more readily accessible test that will let you know if you're testing positive or not for COVID. This is actually how we address these things. And so while it may seem uncertain and scary to people, uh, there is a science to it. Uh, we will get through it, but really what will determine how we get through it, good or bad, will be the choices that we each make to either A, be willing to actually sacrifice a few things for the good of the community as a whole. Yes, it's not great to be stuck indoors and be self-imposed, but this is how we'll actually move forward together is if we all rally around the good of the community.
And we're just gonna pause here really quick, folks, because do I have a story for you? It involves eating cookies and giving back. And if you like the sound of that, you, my friends, have to learn about my new sponsor, None Believable. They're a direct-to-consumer baked goods company on a mission to donate 1 million meals to the food insecure by 2022. Here's how it works. When you or your corporation or a friend orders a box, it's going to show up at your house, at your door, nicely packed, and then they are going to donate two meals to soup kitchens across America. Okay, folks, another thing you need to know is that you, lucky listener, today are receiving 25% off. You gotta try these cookies, they're amazing. This one right here is the the double chocolate chip. I've already gone through the peanut butter today. Delicious. Again, folks, real-leaders.com slash podcast. Enter in code REALEADERS, that's all caps and one word, REALEADERS, And you, my friends, are going to have a box like this. Show up at your door. It's going to be 25% off. And you're also going to be donating two meals to someone in need. So be a smart cookie and build sweet relationships with the unbelievable cookie. Enjoy. The good of the world. Now, you mentioned SARS in there. How similar is COVID-19? Now, COVID-19 is the disease. Coronavirus is the virus. Just want to make that right. clear. So I can't say COVID-19 can stay on cardboard for an hour. That would not make sense, right? So SARS uh, is very similar, though, right, to, to the actual disease. How is it similar? And um, why is it, I guess, now, why are we responding so different this time? Right. So both are coronaviruses. Uh, Severe acute respiratory syndrome was a coronavirus. Um, COVID-19 is a different form of coronavirus. Where they differ, though, is SARS, um, from the time that you have an exposure event that infected you to presentation of symptoms, it was about three days. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was very acute symptoms, like you would know if you had it. Um, And that was a very short window. Uh, With COVID-19, on the other hand, the estimates are somewhere between 12 to 16 days if you're going to present symptoms after being exposed and having exposure events. So that's a much longer window in which you may be carrying around uh, COVID-19 and not even be aware of it as opposed to SARS. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, uh, some people have very severe symptoms and other people have very mild symptoms. And so that's what also makes COVID-19 so challenging is there may be people that are not presenting very strong symptoms. What we don't know yet about COVID-19 is how soon, if you do have a fever, are you infectious to others? And how soon after a fever are you infectious to others as well? It may very well be that there's a extended period in which you're still infectious even after the symptoms appear to have passed. And so until we have more data on that, um, this strategy of uh, social distancing, of self-imposed isolation in different communities and things like that closing the border, it may be a very long wait because if we find out that there's a long period in which you're still infectious after having it, um, it's gonna be hard until we actually have a vaccine or therapy to start intermingling again um, in ways that we're used to doing just a few months earlier. So people are thinking right now, it's like how, if this incubation period is going to be that long, how do we plan for the future? And when do we know this thing's going to die down, I guess? Right. Well, the reality is we don't. Um, It may very very well be, it becomes like influenza where influenza does happen every year um, around the world. And uh, and unfortunately people do, especially uh, people that are more on the elderly side, people can pass away from influenza. Now, clearly the concern with COVID-19 is 
Right now, the case mortality, case morbidity rate is much more severe than influenza. Fortunately, it's still much lower than SARS or anything like that. Um, so it is a lower uh, mortality, case morbidity mor mortality rate as opposed to SARS, but it's higher than influenza. And what we don't know is, is this going to be something that really does become endemic to the planet? And it's something that's just going to show up each year. Um, and so in which case, then we're really trying to look for establishing a vaccine. And if we do establish a vaccine, what we don't know is uh, how rapidly is COVID-19 uh, mutating? Um, the challenge with influenza is each year, essentially, different health organizations around the world, including the Centers for Disease Control, has to guess what the influenza strain is going to be next year. Uh, sometimes they're more accurate, and so the flu vaccine is more effective. And other times, it's, they're less accurate, and so it's less effective. And so we don't know that about COVID-19. Uh, but what we're trying to do right now is obviously, uh, around the world, apply as much research and development as possible, as many scientists as possible to it, try to encourage as much sharing of publications and information, even before it's been peer-reviewed, recognizing that as it gets peer-reviewed, it'll get more accurate. But we've got to be coming together as a planet sharing information because that's the only way we're actually going to begin to have a greater understanding about how soon might we get a vaccine, how effective a vaccine might be in the interim, how great might other therapies be, and there may be other things that are non-vaccine therapies that might help. And, and then how soon can we get everything back on the planet in terms of societies and economies operating again? So, Doc, you, uh, I'm going to say you worked in counter-bioterrorism. And you, so you have some idea of the defense budget and how to prepare for things like this. Um, a lot of people, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, we should have been more prepared. Uh, we, we lack infrastructure right now. What is, what's your opinion on that? Do we lack infrastructure? Are we lacking supplies? Um, and, and in terms of the budget, though, in terms of the asymmetry of this budget for defense versus bioterrorism, um, maybe speak uh, or I guess expand on that a little bit. Right. Well, I mean, again, um, from my own experiences back in 2000, it wasn't until after 9-11 happened that, you know, I mean, we had our we had a very, very small budget. I mean, uh, the budget of the bioterrorism preparedness response program was probably less than 30 million dollars uh, mm. for the entire nation, uh, which is not a lot of money. Um, and so uh, <laughs> but then once it happened, then all of a sudden, of course, Congress actually is appropriating funds to the order of two point four billion dollars. And, and now, of course, it's about, you know, applying and, and responding to both the anthrax events, but other fears as well. And so, like all things, these sort of low probability, but yet high consequence events, right. it's really a question of where do you put your funds, especially if nothing ever has happened yet. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've, I think the challenge we had had is the more recent public health outbreaks, including H1N1, uh, the Ebola outbreak, uh, those were things that never really reached the United States or even reached Europe, per se. And, and so, we, we sort of convinced ourselves as a world that those were things that the, the, the current measures that are done overseas can be handled overseas. It's not going to come here. Hmm. And sure enough, if you wait long enough, a low probability, high consequence event will happen. You just don't know when. And so what was happening is in a period of increased strain and stress on budgets in, in the United States, it's also worth noting, uh, unlike the movies, the federal government is not rushing in with helicopters to an emergency response scene. Uh, because the Constitution doesn't actually say who gets to do health care, it's actually a state right by default. And so we have each of the states have their own health departments. Hmm. Uh, a lot of what CDC does is actually fund support to state health departments. And hmm. so each one of them will have different levels of preparedness and readiness that's appropriate for their state. And then when they ask for assistance or when there's a national emergency declared, that's then when CDC can actually interact with the state level. 
And that's always been a challenge when we've done different sort of table tux exercise of different simulations is how well are you interfacing at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level, recognizing it's all involved. Of course, now in 2020s hindsight, it's easy for people to say we should have more. And I will say this, the state of public health really hasn't advanced much since 2003, 2004. Um, unfortunately, we've had other things that distracted us. Uh, there were the events in both Afghanistan and Iraq. I was actually in Afghanistan in 2009 trying to assist there, both in the humanitarian and the military aid effort. Uh, and then later we get to the 2010 period, and there's other things that are also pulling for our attention. Um, questions about what might be happening in terms of overseas, in terms of international relations, uh, questions about what's happening with emerging technologies and how they're impacting our world. And then in the last five years, um, I would say the most challenging thing to impact public health honestly has actually been the fact that the good news about the internet is anyone can print whatever they want. The bad news about the internet is anyone can print whatever they want. Right. And so we've seen this increase in misinformation, disinformation, not just on health, but on all types of institutions, uh, attacking government, government employees, attacking the private sector. The challenge with misinformation is you really can't combat it once someone's thrown it your way. Uh, if you say X is not true, research shows nobody remembers the not true part. They just remember the X part. Um, if you try to actually provide more facts to convince people that something that they think is not real is not real, unfortunately, once their confirmation bias is kicked in, providing more facts actually makes them dig in harder on their existing views. And so we may have discovered that our brains aren't ready for the internet. And it's worth noting that when when SARS happened, when anthrax happened in 2001, there was misinformation as well. There were conspiracy theories that thought the U.S. government was trying to do it intentionally, which was definitely not the case, or that it was being spread intentionally to target certain populations, also not the case. But we weren't as connected. Not everybody had a smartphone back in 2003 or 2001 that we do now. And so my one advice to people is, if you read an article and it gets your blood pressure up or it gets your emotions up and you feel like you really have to share it because you're either really angry or you really think it's something that everybody needs to know, at least pause for a moment and say, might this be misinformation designed to get me sort of engaged in a non-rational way to spread whatever that misinformation is? Because um, even before COVID-19, uh, we were seeing an actual increase in measles cases for the first time in, in a long time in US history, because unfortunately there was misinformation about vaccines, there was misinformation about measles, and that actually led to physical effects where people were actually getting measles and the first time in, in several decades in the United States. And so COVID-19, there's a lot of misinformation around it. Um, just the last few days, there are individuals that are choosing to impersonate the World Health Organization to either launch apps that'll actually take your phone hostage for ransomware, or just to actually like spread, um, spread infection, advanced persistent threats on your computer or on your mobile phone. Oh my gosh. So we just need to be aware that in the midst of all this real public health response, there's also this added layer of complexity now that we are more connected both digitally and physically. It, it's interesting. And what's been so interesting to me and for our audience listening to this, I'd highly encourage you all to go to Singularity University's COVID-19 virtual summit. It's been so helpful for me as someone who uh, just wants to understand what's going on. You get to learn from a lot of different excerpts. Uh, Dr. Daniel Bray is on there as well. Uh, but one of the guests that came on, Alex Gladstein, he was talking about um, the comparison between an autocracy and a democracy with China uh, and the United States. You talked about misinformation right there. Do you buy China's statistics at face value? And what are the comparisons you're seeing in terms of the response uh, to this, you know, to COVID-19 in both China and the United States? 
So um, in my day job, I am a director for what's called the Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council. We launched literally actually uh, right before things really got uh, hot and heated with COVID-19. And we're the Geotech Center because we look at the geopolitics of technology and how geopolitics changes technology, but then also how does technology change geopolitics. Um, and even going back to SARS, like I said, there were early signs that there was what we called atypical febrile illness uh, well before China eventually said to the world, yes, something's going on here. Yes, it's infectious. Yes, we need assistance. Um, and it was actually Vietnam who first actually invited the assistance at the time, at least for the program I was with, not China. It was later than China that came out. And, and so you have to recognize that at least from a Chinese perspective, um, public health is a national security issue for them. And so they are a more autocratic regime. Uh, I'm not saying that's necessarily good that they choose to be more tight on the information control, but I also understand their situation. Uh, they have had in 3000 years, four revolutions, and the most recent being the 1960s, and it wasn't a good one. And so when you have 1.4 million people, sorry, 1.4 billion people, you are concerned about what might be the civil unrest that may occur there. And again, I come from the United States. I believe in openness. I believe in information sharing, right. even if it's, comes with a cacophony of misinformation or disinformation sharing. And I think that's actually the challenge we have right now in the United States is people feel like our response is either inadequate or could be better. And, and probably in some respects it can be. I mean, armchair quarterbacking is great. 2020 hindsight is great. Part of dealing with a crisis, you, you are dealt with the cards you're dealt and you're trying to move forward as best you can. But at least in our country, we can disagree and we can discuss that. That's not necessarily true in more autocratic regimes. Now, at least in terms of the data, is up until COVID-19, if you look at past disease outbreaks over the last, since 1960 onwards, you've always been better to be in a more open society than you have in a closed society, even if it doesn't feel that way when you're in the midst of it. Because again, you're getting all these different cacophonous uh, voices as to what's going on or what's not going on. Now, COVID-19, the jury's out. I mean, it may turn out that the, that the way an autocratic regime can self-impose things and do surveillance in ways that we can in open societies is better. I hope that's not the case because I celebrate the values of freedom, um, people, and peace. But I raise that because that's on us then. It requires us to think about what leadership we can display, both in terms of working with the private sector, with public leaders, what can public leaders do with the private sector, and also with the public in general. Uh, what can we do to activate community responses, which again, right now might be hard because we all have to do social distancing, but what can we do each in our own locations, wherever we currently are, to at least be helpful with dealing with this response, as opposed to saying that's somebody else's job, because if we say it's somebody else's job, the response is going to be inadequate. And and to the just to keep going with that, to the business community, you know, what advice do you have for leaders who uh, no longer have direct control of their employees, are in the same environment, and are now working remotely? Well, so the the good news is, if there's good news here, in this era of of, of challenging it, challenging finding validity of information. Uh, unlike, say, 2003 or 2004, where a lot of people went to government websites to get sources of information, now people aren't going to government websites. Um, they're also not going to the media in general either. They really are going to their employees. Uh, there's been different research by different groups that actually show employers right now are the definitive source of information. Now, the trouble is, of course, in some cases, employees are getting laid off or, or, or furloughed. But I would say if you're an employer, take it upon as your first responsibility to be a good steward of making sure you pass information that's, and that's accurate, that's timely as much as possible to your employees, including ones that maybe you've, you've, you sort of have a more distant relationship with. 
And at the same time, be available for their questions. Create spaces where they can actually talk to each other, even if it's virtually by some video call or something like that. People need a place where they can ask these questions in a safe space, and it's become employers, interestingly enough. It's no longer the government. It's no longer the media. It's actually employers. And so that's the first thing you can do. But then the second thing to think about is, is what in your industry can you do to help? If you're in an industry that happens to be able to do manufacturing, can you actually help with thinking about supply chains associated with medical supplies, maybe ventilators, uh, maybe about thinking about other parts? If you're in an area, area that does tailoring or sewing, can you actually help with actually doing sewing for N95 or N99 masks? Um, can you actually help that? There's actually been an interesting call for people to actually that can sew at home to actually help create masks as well. And so it really is thinking about what you can do to help with the response. Um, obviously, countries like China and others where the private sector is the public sector, they can mobilize their private sector a lot faster because there's less of a separation. But I do think it's actually incumbent upon us in Europe and the United States and elsewhere to think about how our sectors can work better in this time of crisis to move forward and move successfully through this together. Yeah, it's it's really important. That's the message always, even throughout the year pre-coronavirus is, you know, business leaders need to step up and be become private servants. I mean, for instance, in uh, Puerto Rico, our, our headquarters is in the U.S. Virgin Islands, so we know this well. In Puerto Rico, when Irma and Rita came through and wiped them out, uh, we had a shortage of uh, IV bags and IV supplies. Um, right. And so that that hurt a lot. And, you know, it takes the business community to step up and really change and help these guys out. Um, now, what about different types of companies, different types of workers, the gig economy? These guys are suffering, too, right now. Uh, what have you have you looked into anything that's going on with the gig economy right now? And where do you see I know you're a forward looking uh, thinker. Where do you see uh, or what impact do you think this is going to have on the gig economy and uh, the future of uh, a digital business? Right. So the good news is if you were in a gig economy worker that did telework already in your role, so maybe you were a coder that would do coding for hire or things like that, or data, data analytics for hire, you're probably still going to be very much in demand and that's going to be needed. The less than good news though, is if you were a gig economy worker that did something physically like driving a car, um, like um, helping to do part-time delivery of things or things like that, that's going to be a lot harder because we are in this period of sort of almost self-imposed isolation. Um, I know some people have talked about, well, could, could, could Uber or Lyft actually make sure their cars were clean and everything like that? Maybe. Um, I think we need to be ready for an era in which, again, if things are essential travel only, uh, that may also create restrictions for ride shares. Um, and, and I do think there's going to be a need, though, if we look further down the road, for helping those who are in places where they can't get food or groceries themselves. Um, I'm not sure that's the gig economy. I actually think that's probably going to be something that's either organized in concert with uh, local or state police or with uh, the National Guard uh, for your state and, and actually something like that. But maybe that's something where, again, they may be able to find some way once we figure out what, what's going to be done by either law enforcement or the National Guard to help distribute food, to help actually check in with people that may be in their 60s or 70s that live by themselves or live alone or, or don't have any other family members. We'll have to figure out what that is and then maybe actually look for volunteers to actually help sort of be that auxiliary beyond either law enforcement or National Guard to help with food distribution, to help with supplies and water distribution if that's needed. Hopefully right now water's running for everybody. But then also thinking about what needs to be done to check in with those that may live alone or maybe elderly. Um, but I would say right now, if, if you're in a gig economy that's digital, you're in a better place. Right now, if you're not in the one that's, that's digital, you may have to wait and be a little bit more patient. Um, hopefully there's going to be coming aid from either the federal government or the state government 
Um, but that's sort of unfortunately where we're in right now with social distancing is that the physical in-person jobs are going to be more disadvantaged at the moment. You know, it's interesting times. You know, I don't think anyone really, at least I didn't see this coming uh, and to have this much of an impact. Uh, we're talking about forward thinking here, Doc. Uh, is this the worst to come? Is there going to be something else like this? And what are your predictions uh, for the future moving forward? Well, <laughs> So, uh, I mean, if, if I had a perfect crystal clear ball, then we'd, we'd be perfectly okay and we'd figure out exactly what we're going to do. And so we're going to unfold as, as, this, as this crisis unfolds. Um, I think, again, we don't know how fast uh, COVID-19 is mutating. Uh, hopefully it's not mutating very fast. Hopefully it's not going to actually fragment into um, more than a handful of different strains. But if it does, then we've got challenges. Um, I do think we need to start thinking ahead in terms of uh, what are the appropriate actions that need to be done to make sure civility is maintained in communities? To think about those who are less fortunate or those who may not have enough food or be able to have enough food, uh, to make sure that utilities continue to operate. And, and then recognize here in the United States, the good news is we're in a country that produces more food than it consumes. But that's not true for every country that's out there. Um, and so one would hope that we're actually starting to think about which countries are going to actually need to have the equivalent of almost Berlin airlifts to actually help provide food to them. And maybe some of the commercial airlines right now that are not using their fleets because someone's taking a plane, uh, maybe with now the National Defense Act being activated, that might actually be a way that actually could actually work with them where the government can reimburse them if they help carry food to places that need it. Um, but, but right now the challenge is, is every country is thinking about themselves. And, and I understand that's human nature, but it really is going to take all of us on the planet working together in terms of one, doing the science to make sense of this, but then also doing sort of open source plans for ventilators or open source for other medical parts so that things don't break down. Um, there's also going to be a need for people that are coming online to actually help make sense of all the data that's coming in or trying to connect people that need things with people that have things. Mm. Um, we know that there's going to be burnout amongst medical professionals. In fact, that's already beginning to happen. I mean, you can imagine if you're an ER doc uh, or you're a first line uh, nurse or nurse practitioner and every day you're having to go in recognizing that you are exposing yourself to unknowns that are coming in and you care for them and you took an oath, but at the same time, you have to go home to your family. Um, that's got to be really hard for medical professionals. And so whatever we can do to have an outpouring of uh, support and love for our medical professionals so they actually feel and recognize or recognize, that's all something that each of us can do. Um, and so I, I think there's going to really be a need for everybody. If this is not just stay at home and be alone. This is really thinking about what can you do as a positive change agent? Um, I often talk about leadership is being willing to illuminate a way past the status quo. Well, clearly the status quo is not working for us here. And so we're going to need people that are willing to take up that mantle, think about things beyond themselves, think about the community interests, think about the greater whole and help illuminate a better way forward. I like that a lot. Illuminate past the status quo. I really enjoy that. And, and that, I think a major theme of this conversation today has been you know, the problem and then the the uprise of people uh, stepping up, whether it's the business community, whether it's the doctors, whether it's you and I uh, making little decisions to prevent the the outbreak uh, in the, uh, the the rapid, uh, whatever you call it. I don't know, technical terms of a uh, of a, it, it expanding, essentially. Right. Um, uh, Doc, I had, a, I had a great time speaking with you today. I, I hope our audience I know our audience learned a lot today. Um, so I just want to appreciate you coming back on the or coming on the Real Years podcast. Uh, but with everything that's been said, everything that uh, the problems, the solutions, the community, the coming together uh, to you, Doc, what is your definition of a real leader? 
So what I usually like to do with audiences is I first ask them to actually raise their hand and say, how many of you want to be a leader? And usually the audiences I'm talking to, they all say they want to be a leader. And so then I say, okay, if you want to be a real leader, what if I told you that some say leadership comes from the Greek word lead, which means to be sent unto death. You still want to be leaders. And of course, there's usually some uncomfortable chuckles and everything like that. But I, I, I'm glad to see that you're still raising your hand, Kevin. That's great. And I, hopefully more people are too. I raise that because leadership, some say, comes from Greek, the Greek word leap because the leech were the ones that carried the flag in front of the army. And that's all well and good until one army meets another army. And unfortunately, in a ground war, the first to die are the flag bearers, the leets. Now, nowadays, leadership, though, is not just about leading a flag in front of an army. In fact, I would say that's actually, that's only a small part of leadership. But when you take up the mantle to go past the status quo, I guarantee mm. you a large amount of people are going to push you back in and say, wait, get back in your box. Or what are you talking about? You're crazy. Or, or the terms you're using, that doesn't make any sense. Why not? Why, why are you pushing for this? And so you have to be willing to carry that flag, even though you recognize that you may metaphorically uh, have arrows thrown your way, flax thrown your way, people trying to tell you you're crazy or saying that doesn't fit your definition or you're wrong or you made it up. Um, that's all the nature of a good leader. And actually, I would point to uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, who had his most trying moment was actually not against those who had actually imprisoned him. I'm sure that was hard. In fact, he, he writes in his biography that was hard in his autobiography. But he also points out that his most trying moment as a leader was when he had to turn to his own party, the African National Congress, and convince them to make peace through truth and reconciliation as opposed to violence. And of course, for all rights and purposes, given everything that had happened to them in South Africa, they had the right to be angry and they'll actually want totally. some more violent sort of justice. But he was able to convince them to do truth and reconciliation instead. And in the end, everybody was better. But I raise that because nowadays a true leader is willing to take all the arrows, is to take all the muds from their way, to take all the accusations that are not true and keep their head about them. Um, there's actually a, a wonderful poem that says, if you can keep your head about you when all are losing theirs and blame it on you. Um, that's the nature of a true leader is that willingness to move forward and illuminate that way past the status quo and to try and think about others beyond themselves in the midst of everything. Beautifully put, Doc. Appreciate you coming uh, on the Real Leaders podcast today. For Dr. David Bray, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, push past the status quo, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Doc. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you, audience, for listening to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. We hope it inspires you all to get out in the community today and help someone in need. Is it a nurse whose kids are at home now and need help being watched while they're helping other victims? Is it the grocery store worker who has to be at the grocery store for more hours and needs someone to let her dog out? You know who it is in your community who needs assistance and you can be the one to illuminate past the status quo let's do it people let's do it together we're going to do our job here at the real leaders podcast by bringing you more experts on the coronavirus how to prepare how to respond and how to lead in times of uncertainty and so whatever listening platform you are hearing my voice on make sure you hit the subscribe button to be notified of more experts on the coronavirus so thank you all for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.